a crazy driver, the world's worst grandma in history, and a bunch of terrible kings bring about the fall of Israel and Judah. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors at Gospel Community Church here in Santa Cruz, California. Well, welcome. A reminder to like, subscribe, comment, um, just so we can get the gospel out and uh, get people listening to these uh, awesome uh, videos about uh, the Bible. That's right. Brandon, what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to finish up 2 Kings. I think I said last week that we were going to just kind of skip the rest of 2 Kings, but I was lying. <laughs> no surprise there. Uh, we're going to finish the rest of Second Kings, and uh, and then we'll get into the same stories again in Second First and Second Chronicles. It's yeah, gonna be we'll, great. We'll essentially, you know, repeat the entire Bible. Again. Yeah, yeah, it'll be great. It'll be wonderful. It'll be grand. So, what's the structure of First and Second Kings again? Yeah, so so we saw at the beginning of First Kings, we saw Solomon's reign sort of kicks everything off, and then after Solomon, the kingdom is divided, mm-hmm. and that's Rehoboam takes over in the south, mm-hmm. Jeroboam in the north, and yeah. so we have to keep in mind those two separate kingdoms because everything is going to be built around those two kingdoms. Right. So you get really confused if you're hearing like kings from different... Uh, Israel and yeah. Judah. Israel and Judah, yeah. yeah. And, and then we saw, we focused on the kings and the prophets starting in 1 Kings 17. We saw Elijah step into the scene mm-hmm. and Elijah is a, is a key figure. He defeats the prophets of Baal, um, but he doesn't get the revival he wants to. He's right. fighting against King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel. But Elisha takes his place, and Elisha takes over at the beginning of 2 Kings, and we saw the stories of Elisha, who had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Yeah, doubled the amount of, uh, you know, miracles. And, yeah, yeah and, and he's really, Elijah, Elisha is controlling world history. Mm-hmm. He's, he's you know, t- anointing king of Syria, the king of, of northern kingdom. I mean, he's doing all these different things, and so... Um, God's word is the idea that it's it's in control. Mm. God's word is directing the course of human history, right. and it's powerful. And so we see all these examples throughout First and Second Kings of obedience to God's word leading to blessing and disobedience to God's word leading to curse. Right. So there's tons of examples of that. So that all the way through Second Kings eight, um, we see the kings versus the prophets, and now we're going to see the downward spiral of Israel. Right. So you want a downward spiral, and then at the very end of the book, we'll see the exile. So Israel will go into exile in Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah will go into exile in Babylon. Yep. So, yeah, definitely themes of God's sovereignty, and that's really cool, I think, to see when you're looking through these these stories of these rulers of God's people, and yeah, people are making bad choices. Some of the kings make some good choices, right? But I think it's really cool to see God's sovereign hand throughout the whole process and see, you know— you know, him moving along history towards a goal, even though everything is moving against him, it seems. You know? That's right. So. Yeah. Um, so I had a great question for you, though. Okay. What is your favorite king in Second Kings? Well, it could be any king, I guess. Favorite but, king. So like, no. I can't pick Solomon. I can't pick David. You ruled those out. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, not in terms of characters. I do like Hezekiah. He's pretty awesome. You know, that's like a godly answer. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just pure entertainment value, Jehu is definitely up there. Yep. Jehu is, is, a, is a hoot, as they say. <laughs> but also, I'm a very progressive guy. Oh. So I'm going to go with Athaliah. Oh, why is Athaliah yeah. your favorite? Because Athaliah is actually a queen. Yep, so, <laughs> exactly. So it's, you know, very progressive of me to say that. Very evil, too. Yeah, so she's just horrible. She's yeah. the worst. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll get there, man. Yeah. But Crazy. what about you? You got a favorite favorite king? Oh, Jesus, of course. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess if I say he's not in Second Kings, I'm kind of undermining my own oh, whole thing here. gotcha. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. So let's uh, let's review a little bit of what we covered so far. 
Okay, so yeah, so big big themes from First and Second Kings, mm-hmm. the power of God's word. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, we're going to see these kings too. We're going to walk through um, king by king. We'll go through every single one, mm-hmm. but uh, we want to see. We want to focus on what the Bible is focusing on, which is how do these kings do in terms of their faithfulness to God, mm-hmm. and really how we can understand the kings and their their, I guess, performance as kings is through a few different lenses. And they're going to be judged on these principles, which is how do they follow God's covenant? Hmm. And do they cause God's people to retain the Holy Land or lose the Holy Land? Right. That's always going to be the lens. And we saw in, in particular in the covenant from Deuteronomy, we saw the law of kings. In Deuteronomy 17, this is very important. We've mentioned it a bunch of times, but it's so, so important. This, this idea of the king cannot have gold gals and giddy up. Yep. I right? can't multiply them. Remember that? It's right? great. So gold meaning wealth, uh, material wealth. G- girls, g- gals meaning uh, lots of wives. Yep. They shouldn't multiply wives. And then as we call it, giddy up. I stole that from my professors at the Master's University, of course. Um, but giddy up means horses. Horses. <laughs> I didn't make that up. I'm not that smart. Come on now. Uh, so you can't have a lot of horses because horses are are elements of war. Right. So wives Don't would be the idea of, oh. of alliances with foreign nations because you would you'd marry someone to be in an alliance. And we'll see the marriage thing coming back again and again. We saw it already, obviously, with David, multiple wives. Solomon went to you know the big leagues with 700 wives, 300 concubines <laughs> for 1,000 total, just a nice round number. And then uh, we saw it with Ahab, who even though we don't hear about polygamy, he marries Jezebel. Right. And that's that's an alliance with the Phoenicians. So there's there's real problems there because they're not obeying these these rules. And we'll see this. The the horses is trying to mil- multiply military strength, mm-hmm. having might in your military. And so it's all about really, does the king trust in God? Right. That's really the heart of it. The, all these things are just outward signs of that. Because if you're trusting in your wealth or in your uh, alliances or in your military, you're not going to be trusting in God. So that's the test. And we'll see some kings do well, relatively speaking, and some do awful, horribly. Right. Mostly but, southern kings do well, I guess. Yeah. yeah some yeah. of the southern kings do well. Yeah. All the northern kings do horribly. Right. And and so anyway, in all of this, we see the influence of Deuteronomy, that God's promise of I'm going to bring blessings or curses based upon whether you follow my law mm-hmm. is going to come to fruition in this book. Right. In the, a negative sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and then of course, they're all, they're all judged in terms of do they worship God and they're all judged in terms of King David. Mm. King David is that standard, like that standard for them. Yeah. They did live up to David or they, or they didn't. So the, the Southern Kings tend to be judged in light of King David as a positive example the northern kings will be judged in terms of Jeroboam as a negative example. I mean, David even in himself wasn't perfect. So why would why would he be a standard in which, you know, even in, in Chronicles, why is, you know, David looked at as kind of like the standard of a good king? Yeah, yeah, even, yeah, that's right. Even David couldn't pass the test. Right. And that's the thing is these, these kings will barely even measure up to David. Right. But David is pointing to that hope of a messianic king. There you go. That makes sense. A no. king after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that especially actually in First and Second Chronicles. Right. That'll come to light a little bit more. Um, but yeah, we know, that, of course, that even David couldn't do it. So right. yeah, but that's about as good as it gets. We have a few different kings yeah. that are that are pretty good, and there's some some hope. But we'll see even that hope falls way short because yeah, of their weakness. For sure, I think David he has a, you know, he has some repentance in him too. He's definitely better in that light where he is trusting in God more. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So, 
Cool. Well, you ready to get into the text a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, awesome. So Second Kings chapter 9, we're going to be kind of going along, and we're going to be hitting, like, we're going to be jumping around with different kings and stuff like that. So some lump all the northern ones together and lump all the southern ones together, right? Yeah, let, so let's look first at Israel's king. Yeah. So I know this is super confusing because it used to all be Israel. Yeah. But now it's the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the single tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. which is sort of going to be the, the center. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the Davidic kings are. And then the northern kingdom, which has, you know, many different dynasties. Right. I forget how many. But so Israel, let's go to Israel's kings first. So throughout, as you're reading this, it'll talk about... You know, Jehu becomes king in Assyria, and then uh, Azariah becomes king. It, it's going to go back and forth between the kingdoms. So just notice that, and we're going to focus just on the northern kingdoms first, and then the south. But mm-hmm. notice this, even just go back a little ways to 1 Kings chapter 16. We have, we've had a mention of quite a few different kings in the north already. Um, in 1 Kings 16, we're introduced to, you know, Elah, Zimri, and then Omri. Mm-hmm. Omri is actually he's a he's a very important figure historically speaking. Omri is actually the most powerful king in the north, period. And yet, look at look at all that's said about Omri. If you look at it, it's only a few verses in in First Kings sixteen, and we see really a statement about Omri in verse twenty five. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. Right. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, <laughs> the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So he's evil and he made God angry. So you're going to see these summaries of the lives of the kings uh, for both, both north and south. Right. You're going to see these summaries. And this is really important to notice. I mean, I've, I've highlighted most of them in my Bible because I think that they're very important. And really, I mean, Omri is so important that... Afterward, uh, over 100 years after the death of Omri, Assyria still referred to Israel in their documents that we have as the house of Omri hmm. or the land of Omri. So he was that influential. He was seen as the power player. He extended the borders. He was a conquering king. And yet, none of that's recorded. Wow. None of that matters. Right. I think it's, it's very important for understanding how the Bible and how God sees humans. Right, yeah, so what would be important about that whole idea? I mean, ultimately, it's Omri was a failure because he didn't obey God. Right. It doesn't matter what he accomplished. What matters is, did he love God? Did he follow after God? Right. right? Did he trust in God? And none of, that, none of that is true of Omri. And so he's forgotten right. in terms of biblical history. He's not important. So, right. And, of course, he, it was Omri who made a, an alliance with Phoenicia, and Jezebel marrying his son was part of that deal. Right. Right, so he introduces great evil into Israel. Hmm. But uh, then, then we saw Ahab. We, we walked, walked through Ahab a lot, but Ahab was a very was a bad dude right. to quote a great uh, <laughs> politician. Um, and and then we see every king after that. Right, every king after that is bad in Israel. Um, we see Jehu introduced in the ministry of Elisha. We saw him a little bit mm-hmm. last week. Um, Jehu is really the best king Israel has. <laughs> and the reason why he's the best king, he's very evil. He worships all the idols and stuff. Right. But he kills a lot of bad people first. So right. that's like the Makes sense. this is like the, the high point for Israel. This is as good as it gets. Um, <laughs> but I do like Jehu a lot. We see, first of all, Jehu is going to, he's been told by Elisha he's going to be the king of Israel. And so he goes to assassinate these evil kings. Right. And so he goes to assassinate Joram and Ahaziah. And as he's in his chariot driving, 
the watchman who's with the kings says, you know, there's someone coming in a chariot. So they send a messenger out there and say, is, you know, are you here for peace? That's kind of the message. Are you here for peace? Or are you here for war? And Jehu's like, what do you want to do with peace? Get behind me. Follow me. And so the, the messenger gets behind him and follows him. And then the second one is sent because they see he didn't return. And he does the same thing, right? Hey, join my army. So he gets with him. And I love in, in chapter 16 or chapter uh, 9, verse 20, they see, they see uh, Jehu writing. And the watchman reported, um, he, the, the second messenger right reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Oh man! So I love this. So yes. so he's just driving like I, I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, I think if you wanted to get an example, you just go drive with Caleb Gibbs, and he'd probably yeah. give you an idea of exactly, how man, good of a driver this is, right? Here. Yeah, my, my my brother-in-law Caleb Gibbs, he can drive over the 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 uh, seventeen in like seven minutes, <laughs> just taking every <laughs> turn. He can get to uh, to Tahoe in like three hours. Drives furiously. Drives furiously. Yeah. <laughs> so he's. I don't know. I don't know what it is about him, but he's he's driving furiously because he's going to to bring the vengeance of God upon these evil people, and so so he 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 kills the the, the both the kings right, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually he actually is very concerned about fulfilling God's word. So we see in chapter nine, verse twenty five, and the following verses. Basically, he's he's saying when he kills um, when he kills the the evil king, he throws him. On on the ground or on the yeah on the ground where Naboth's vineyard was, right. uh, where Naboth had died, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, um, so Joram dies where it was prophesied that he would die, <laughs> and then and then we see that he actually goes much further and he finds Jezebel. This is like verse thirty three is crazy, and he said to her, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And they trampled on her. <laughs> it's just like. Oh my that's, word. A, that's a rough death, yeah. So I love it. So I love this, a few things about Jezebel's death, right? First of all, it says that she gets all dressed up. So verse thirty, now she's, <laughs> yeah, she's she's the like queen mother, ready. right? She's the queen mother. So so her husband Ahab is dead. Her son took over. Now her son is dead. She probably doesn't know that yet, but she sees Jehu coming and she gets all dolled up. Um, I don't know why. If she like thinks she can, like you know, charm him with her with her good looks, uh, who knows? But but then he calls out up to the window where she is, you know, who's on the side of, of Jehu basically, right? Who's on, who's on, how does he, how does he say it? Um, yeah, who is on my side? Who? And then, then a few of his servants look out the window and they're like, we are. And he's like, throw her out the window. So they just, I mean, how bad do you have to be to your own servants hate you that much? But so then he goes on in chapter 10 and he kills all of Ahab's line. And, and again, his focus is on the fulfilling of God's word. We see this in chapter 10, verse 17. This is according to the word. This would be the a Lord. great movie. He spoke to Elijah. It would be a great movie. I don't. We couldn't watch it. No one, <laughs> no one could watch it. <laughs> be pretty brutal. We can read about it. We can't. Yeah, we can read about it, but we can't watch it. Exactly. Exactly. It'd be too much. And then he goes on even to kill the prophets of Baal. Yeah. I love. I love this in chapter ten, verse eighteen. Jehu gets all the people together and he says, "Ahab served Baal a little." It's not true because Ahab was totally all right. for Baal. But he says, but Jehu will serve him much. <laughs> now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, all his priests. I get every single, every single one of them. I want to get everyone together for a big party, right? <laughs> and then, of course, he slaughters all of them. So he's a, he's a tricksy guy. Yeah, tricksy um, hobbit. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he even says in verse 23, right, go, he tells the servants, go and search, make sure there's no worshipers of God here. Hmm. If anyone is innocent of the crime of Baal worship, get them, get them out of here. And when he, 
destroyed these these false prophets and the, these false worshipers. He um, he burns the house of Baal in ten twenty six, and then ten twenty seven says they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. <laughs> so the house of Baal becomes a porta potty. Yep, but not not portable. So just a just what do they call that? A bathroom? Potty. A yeah, potty. Just a potty. Oh, yeah. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, so, so again, this is, I mean, this is really good. This kind of, almost kind of feels like uh, Elijah right here, right? Defeating the prophets of Baal. Maybe Jehu's going to be a guy loyal to, loyal to God. Mm-hmm. And he even cares about filling God's prophecy. Right. But then in the very next verse, we see verse 29, Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so he, he, he goes on to do the same sins. In other words, he still has idolatry through the golden calves. Mm-hmm. That's the sin of Jeroboam. And God says to him in verse 30, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit, shall sit on the throne of Israel. So he does say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have mercy on you because you did obey me in these ways. Right. But... Bottom line, verse thirty-one. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. Yep. So he's he's and he didn't ch- turn from the sins of Jeroboam. So same sins are ensnaring Israel for the rest of their history, yep. including in in Jehu. So bummer, Jehu. But we actually this is so this is important prophecy. So he says basically four generations of Jehu's mm-hmm. dynasty will sit on the throne before God d- destroys that line. Right. And really, at that point, once the fourth generation of Jehu is done it begins this downward spiral of mm-hmm. Israel's history. It's like king after king after king until the exile. Right. So that's just something to, important to remember. So um, so that's Jehu. Interesting guy. Yep. Northern kingdom. Fun in a kind of a macabre sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz. So, uh, again, I won't focus on every single king, but Jehoahaz, we have the same sort of summary of his life, right? Chapter yeah, 13. Can, yeah, exactly. Verse 2, right? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Right? So, and then God is punishing Israel because of that. He's giving them in the hands of their enemies. And then we see in, in verse 4, chapter 13, Jehoah has actually praised to God, mm. seeks God's favor, and God answers him, right? God delivers them from the Syrians. See, God is ready and willing to help his kings if they'll turn to him. Right. But then again, we see in chapter 13, verse 6, but he kept sinning. <laughs> so he kept going back to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And then we got Jeroboam the second in Israel <clears throat> in chapter 14. Jeroboam the second. Now, why, why is that a bad name to name your, your kid? <laughs> Let's think about this. Right? <laughs> There's never a David the second. Yeah, it means I guess it just means yeah. you hate God. So, like, at least that would be yeah. Like that, that would be David. Like I really want this kid to be like David. Have a you know, but I really want my kid to be like Jeroboam, <laughs> the son of Nebat. Like that's the whole thing that's that's going wrong. So this is I mean just flagrantly despising God by by naming him that, and we see he's a failure as well. Again, chapter fourteen twenty four. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. So like, wow, surprise there, right? <laughs> Very surprising. But there's actually, it's amazing. In verse 25, we see that God is still expanding their borders. He's given them a period of victory under Jeroboam II. Right. It, it is amazing, like, in a culture that, like, puts such emphasis on names and their meaning and, you know, the, the hope within them that that name would come up again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it just shows the, yeah, 
hate of hatred of God, I guess. But, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So then Jeroboam's son Zechariah mm-hmm. sits on the throne in chapter fifteen. Yep. Uh, this is so. This is the last son of Jehu. So this is the fourth generation. It's beginning to you know wind down, and then we're going to have this string of kings after that. So we see it explicitly said in chapter fifteen, verse nine. He did what was evil. Guess what? He didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. <laughs> Same thing over and over again. And then in verse 12, it says, This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel yep. to the fourth generation, and so it came to pass. So that's been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And then we have Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah. I mean, it just keeps... And basically, it's falling apart. Right. So rapid succession of kings, and then Israel is going to, going to end. So bottom line for Israel is... Every king is bad. Yep. Every king is bad. There's there's no hope in any of the rulers of Israel. They're all, I mean, really, to say fully evil, maybe maybe over the top a little bit, but not much. Yeah, there's some kind of restraint from God, but yeah. they're pretty horrible. They're not they're not reaching out to God very much. Right. Yeah. So, cool. Well, what about Southern Kingdom? Southern Kingdom. So let's let's look through Judah's kings. As, as I said, that the Northern Kingdom is all bad. And the Southern Kingdom is a mixture of good mm-hmm, and bad. Right. So we have some kings that are good, some that are bad, some that are kind of, it kind of depends mm-hmm. how, you, how you look at them. But um, Judah's, Judah's kings are a mix. And even, of course, even the good ones will fail at points. But we've seen Abijam, uh, we've seen Asa. So Abijam was bad, Asa was good. Mm-hmm. We've seen Jehoshaphat in the stories of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Jehoshaphat is a good king, but he, he makes an alliance with Ahab. Right, the, the evil not king of Israel. King, yeah. So he makes a mistake there. We see Jehoram in uh, chapter eight. Some of these, some of these guys have multiple names, so it's very, very confusing. <laughs> um, Jehoram, this is this is a really bad thing to hear. It says in uh, verse chapter eight, chapter eight, verse eighteen, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Wow. Okay. So he's he's following the northern kingdom, which is bad, because he's married to uh, Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Mm-hmm. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But it says in verse 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, mm-hmm. since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So Jehoram is bad news because there's now a mixing between the lines of the north and the south. Right. There's intermarriage, which again is one of the faults of, of a king, right? One of the laws of the king you shouldn't be doing. And actually, after this, there's sort of there's like similar names in the north and south. Hmm. Maybe as you were reading, you you saw this. There's wait, there's like a Jehoash and a Joash on on mm-hmm. each kingdom, and there's an Ahaziah and an Ahaziah on each side. And the reason for this is because you can presume because of that intermixing. It's yeah. like, hey, I'm going to name you after your uncle, right? right? And then, oh, I'll name my kid after his, <laughs> his uncle, whatever, you know? So there's, there's too much mixing, and so there's all the similarity between the kingdoms. Right. Ahaziah, we see him a little bit later. Um, and then we see Athaliah. Athaliah is really uh, an interesting, interesting, uh, not king. She's, <laughs> she's a queen, right? God save so, the queen. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> a- so Ahaziah is killed by Jehu. And this actually leaves the throne open for Athaliah. So Ahaziah was was bad, but there's once he's dead, there's no king on the throne. Mm-hmm. And so Athaliah, who is his mother, mm-hmm. takes over. 
So Athaliah becomes queen. Now, in order to do this, in order to become queen, she has to get rid of any people that could sit on the throne. Right. And so, so what does she do? So Athaliah decides to do the very grandmotherly loving act of slaughtering all of her <laughs> grandchildren. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful, right? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. <laughs> this, I mean, this is, a, yeah, obviously, if you have anyone in your family that you complain about, just be glad your grandma is not <laughs> Athaliah, right? Wow. I love my grandma. She's awesome. <laughs> Um, but it's it's funny because it's like I mean what could be more non-threatening than a grandmother, right? But there's so much evil here that she's willing to slaughter, and and you got to think back to think back to Genesis chapter three, mm-hmm. think back to the promise of an offspring that will destroy the seed of the serpent, right? And then of course Second Samuel seven that's going to come through David's line, right? And now you have Athaliah destroying her own line, right? If you're a grandma, I'm just going to assume that you're not able to have kids anymore. Right. So she would rather annihilate any hope of a seed. Right. Any hope of of uh, salvation coming through her line. Just yeah, so for she a can true reign. good king to come finally, and she wants that for herself. It's yeah. Nuts, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, just evil on every level. Yeah. So worst grandma ever. <laughs> I think that's pretty... I'd, I'd love to hear if there's a worse one out there. I think this has got to be the worst. <laughs> But actually, there's she misses one of her grandkids. So that's Joash. Thank you, Lord. So he snuck out. So Joash is the last seed, the last offspring of David mm-hmm. um, in this royal line, at least, right. that's able to survive. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very significant. So she steals him. So he's stolen away, and he's he's hidden for six years. So he's two years old when they hide him, and he's hidden for six years. And then when he's eight years old, they bring him out. And they basically lead a coup. Right. Is, uh, is it really a coup? Because Athaliah <laughs> is not the real king, queen. Um, but they, uh, it's Jehoiada, who's the priest. He leads um, Joash, and and this reform comes through the ministry or through the the kingdom kingship of Joash. So Joash, also known as Jehoash, just to make things a little extra confusing, <laughs> um, leads this reform, and we see this actually in chapter twelve, verse two. Jehoiada, Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord mm-hmm. all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. People continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Yes, yeah, so worshiping other gods. and you know. Well, the high places, remember, the high places were not um, typically places of idol worship. Mm-hmm. Could be, but the high places... So to say you remove the idols, but not the high places, means you removed... The, the false gods, mm-hmm. but you didn't remove the false worship. Mm-hmm. Remember, um, the, this whole idea of idolatry is not just don't worship other gods. It's something more than that. It's don't worship the true God in a false way right. through, through the methods of these false religions. Mm. You don't worship God through child sacrifice, right. to put it at an extreme end of that. But also, you, you worship God at the temple as he's commanded you. Right. You don't worship him on the hills or under the trees mm-hmm. as they wanted to do. Yeah. Right. Have that kind of more authentic worship worship experience. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, so he so he's he's faithful, but he's not a hundred percent faithful. But we see he repairs the temple. He leads sort of a revival in Israel that's very significant. Or in, in Judah, that's very significant. And then Amaziah comes along. We see Amaziah's um, in chapter fourteen, verse three. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
yet not like David, his father. Yeah, not as good. He's falling short of David. But he did in all things as Joash, his father, had done. But the mm. high places were not removed. So he's, he's a good king, but he's not the great king. He's not right. the true king. So then we see Azariah. We see Jotham. Jotham's a good king. Um, oh, we then see, we have a good one coming. We see time. Ahaz. Well, first got to have Ahaz. Before you get to Hezekiah, you got to have Ahaz. <laughs> Ahaz is a, a, a truly awful king. Yeah. I mean, listen to the list of things that Ahaz does. It says, Ahaz, this is chapter 16, verse 2. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Okay, that's bad. But, I mean, maybe not, you know, not the worst thing. <laughs> Let's go on. He even burned his son as an offering. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah, we're going to go with that's That's probably not not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, wow. According to the despicable practices of the nations... Whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. <laughs> and he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Wow. So this is, I mean, this is a new level of evil. Sacrificing your child, practicing the Canaanite practices. Mm -hmm. The practices that Joshua fought the battles to drive out. Right. That God brought holy war against those people because of their evil. And yet the king of Israel, of Judah is doing the same thing. And then we see he, he has this situation where Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are trying to get him to go to war with them. Mm -hmm. And instead of relying on God, Ahaz turns to the king of Assyria. So don't confuse Syria and Assyria. <laughs> Very confusing. But he turns to, to Assyria, the, this big kingdom, and he says, sends a message in chapter 16, verse 7. He says to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he says, I am your servant and your son. Hmm. Well, that's that's bad, right? Because right? in Second Samuel seven, the king was was God's son. Right. right? He was God's son, and of course, he was also God's servant. And yet now he's calling himself a servant and son of Assyria. And he takes the gold from the house of the Lord and gives it to the king of Assyria for deliverance. Right. So he's he's actively displaying that he does not trust in God; he trusts in the power of alliances. Hmm. And Assyria will become a huge problem. Obviously, they're going to take over Israel. Right. They'll, they'll devastate Israel, but they won't stop there. They're going to also attack uh, Judah. It's going to lead to big problems for Judah as well. So those are the kings of, of Judah up to the point of the fall of Israel. Right. So we see in chapter 17, Israel falls. Their last king, Hosea, then that leads to the fall of Israel. So Assyria comes and takes over mm -hmm. Israel. And we see explicit reasons for why this happened. I mean, the Bible is just so clear in chapter 17, verse 7. It says all this, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. So they've turned from obedience to God and have feared other gods, even though God delivered them. And then verse 8, and they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's crazy. So it's actually... Like God's will that His people are being, you know, driven out and exiled. Yes, I, and that's the whole the whole warning in Deuteronomy. If, right. if you be, uh, I'm I'm not bringing you here because you're righteous, but because these nations that you're driving out are evil. Right. You're the method of God's judgment on evil in this in this point in history. But if you do the same thing as them, gonna I'm going to drive you out. Yep. Because God like hates evil, and it says the people of Israel, verse nine, did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for mm. themselves high places. 
verse 10, they set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill. Um, verse, verse 11, they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. Verse 12, they served idols. And it says God warned them by the prophets, yet they wouldn't listen. Hmm. They, verse 14, they would not listen. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenants. They went after false idols and became false. In verse 16, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. So it's just such a comprehensive statement yeah. of let's be really clear as to why this happened. This didn't happen because Israel didn't fortify their cities well. Right. It just didn't happen because of lack of political strategy. This happened for a simple reason, right. because they hated the God who delivered them from Egypt. Hmm. I mean, their strength was always in the Word of God and in the Lord himself. Right. Yet they completely abandoned that. Yeah. So, I mean, just... Yeah, just a very humbling thing, right? A very humbling thing. And so we see the end of Israel, and what happens is there's a, a resettlement in the northern kingdom, mm-hmm. which is going to be referred to primarily as Samaria uh, from now on. But uh, what happens is the Assyrians decide to resettle the land by intermarrying with the people, right. <clears throat> by resettling their own people there to intermarry with the, the Jews, and they create sort of a half Assyrian, half Jewish group of people. Mm-hmm which of course is seen as very, is an abomination by the, by the Jewish people who are pure right. Jew, right? Yeah, you see that a lot more in the New Testament. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That'll, that'll yeah. come up uh, in a big way in the New Testament. But so, it, and it's not just a half-breed in terms of uh, racially or, or ethnically, right. that's significant for the Jews, but it's also the syncretistic worship that begins to happen. Right. It's a combination of worship of Yahweh with worship of, of false gods. So. Mm. That's going to continue, in a sense, in terms of the mode of worship into the New Testament time. Right. So Israel bites the dust, um, but we'll also see Judah. But before we get there, we have another king. Yeah. So so now we now we're going to there's just Judah left, <laughs> and so Hezekiah takes takes the throne, and Hezekiah's got a an interesting situation because he just witnessed the fall of Israel. Mm-hmm. He saw what happened. And so this is a real wake-up call right. for it should be, because you've seen the devastation God brought on His northern kingdom. Right. And so Hezekiah actually responds well to that. Hezekiah is is a good king. He's a complicated king, but he is a a good king. We see in chapter eighteen, verse three, that Hezekiah did was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Mm-hmm. He removed the high places. So he actually goes beyond what some of these other kings had done who were, who were good-ish. Mm-hmm. He removes the high places, breaks the pillars, cuts down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made because he used to be an object of worship. So mm. he's actually going beyond and, and getting really deep into their history and getting rid of things that cause idolatry. Mm. And it says in verse 5, He trusted the, in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. So... Hezekiah is a faithful king. He's he's uh, he loves God. He trusts God, and yet he's faced with a really bad situation. Right. So we see what happens is uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes against Hezekiah. So remember, Ahaz had bribed Assyria to come and to kill the northern kingdom. Right. And now it's going to backfire, and mm. they're going to keep going south. But Ahaz had trusted in Assyria. Had trusted in, in human strength. Is King Hezekiah going to pass that test? Right. Ahaz failed. Is, is Hezekiah going to pass it? And what happens is this 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 person referred to as the Rabshakeh, who's probably a, it's probably a, a a name for his position in the Assyrian army. 
he comes and he starts to taunt Hezekiah and the armies of, of Israel. It's almost kind of like, you know, David and Goliath kind of stuff, you yeah. know. But he's, he's taunting. We have this big, long speech from him. This is actually recorded in three different places in Scripture. Hmm. So we'll see it in Chronicles, and then we'll see it in the book of Isaiah as right. well. Because the prophet Isaiah features prominently in the story. But what happens is he's taunting God's people, right? He says in chapter 18, verse 19, uh, on what does do you rest this trust of yours? Hmm. What are you trusting in? He says, in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Speaking for the king of, of Assyria. In verse 22, he says, if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. That's really interesting. So he's attacking the fact that Hezekiah has purified worship. Right. He's saying, it's, it's kind of like if if you and I were to speak against churches in Santa Cruz that are heretical. There are there are a couple. Yeah. A couple. For sure. That are pretty obvious. Um, so if we were, we were to say... Yeah, those those are false places of worship, mm-hmm. right? They don't actually uphold the scripture; they deny all the scripture. And someone can say to us, "Well, you don't really care about Christianity because you wanted that church closed, right?" It's Which like, would inevitably happen at least once, probably. That's true. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Someone would say it, right? <laughs> that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying he doesn't care about the, the Lord. And then he actually claims in verse twenty-five, he says, "It's more. Is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it.'" <laughs> So God, God actually told me, that's what he's claiming, right? right. God, is, God told us to go and do this. So he's bringing, I mean, false view of God, and he's degrading their trust in God. Right. This, I mean, this is a big moment. If the entire history of Israel and Judah has been a lack of trust in the Lord, right. how is Hezekiah going to respond when it really, really matters? Mm-hmm. And so he, he actually, um, there's a lot we could say about this, but Isaiah actually sends a message. So the prophet Isaiah sends a message to Hezekiah. In uh, chapter 19, verse 6, do not be afraid because of the words you have heard. And he tells him, you're gonna, he's actually going to hear a rumor, go back to his, his land, and he'll die uh, by the sword in his own land. So I'm going to kill Sennacherib without you ever having to lift a finger. Hmm. And that's exactly what he does. So we see in chapter 19, verse 35, what happens is the angel of the Lord and goes out and strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Mm. And when people rose early the next morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So God God brings a victory without Israel or without Judah having to do anything. And and so Hezekiah's trust in God pays off. Right. I mean it's, it's it God is faithful to defend his people. But sadly, I mean Hezekiah doesn't end well. Right. For all that for I mean that moment of testing that he passes. Unbelievable. But Hezekiah doesn't end well. We see actually kind of a strange thing, but in chapter 20, verse 12, he goes and he, he meets with the, the emissaries from the king of Babylon. Mm-hmm. And he shows them around his house. He shows them the temple. He shows them the temple treasuries. He shows them all the wealth that he has and that belongs to God. And he gets condemned for this. Hmm. Right? Isaiah gets very upset with him. And he says in, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 20, he says, because you've done this, all these things are going to be carried away to Babylon. All this wealth is going to be carried away to Babylon. You'll be eventually captives in Babylon is the idea. And he says, and your, your sons will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
So yeah. why why would that be the grievous thing? Because again, he's he's showing his lack of trust in God, right? Right, trying to win over alliances with evil kingdoms mm-hmm. instead of trusting in God, right? And to show them the treasuries of God, I mean, it has nothing to do with Babylon, right? right? It's it kind of it seems like he's trying to show them in case he needs to bribe them. Mm. Look, this is what I can have that I can give you, and yeah, God's condemning that kind of behavior, right? And and I love Hezekiah's response to all that. Your kids are going to be eunuchs and all that. He's, <laughs> verse verse nineteen. He says, "The word the Lord has spoken is good." Like, and he, and the reason why is because he said, "Oh, it's going to be peaceful in my days." Hmm. So, not not a great way to end your right. life, thinking only of the here and now. Right. Um, but then we get to Manasseh, who really is peak evil in the nation of Judah. He's he's peak evil. Yeah, you got to love. Gotta love the evil, evil Manasseh. Um, his list of of sins really is. I mean, makes Ahaz, Ahaz look like nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Manasseh. It says, you know, of course he did evil, chapter twenty one, verse two. But in verse three, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah had destroyed. Um, twenty one, verse three, he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So all these false gods. Uh, verse verse four or verse five. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. <laughs> so he's building altars for false worship in God's temple. Right. Verse six. He burned his son as an offering, and used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Seems like a great guy. Woo. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. So Manasseh is is peak evil. And it's this that leads God to destroy them. Hmm. So chapter 20, 21, verse 9, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Hmm. So we've seen previously hints of them becoming like the Canaanites, the Amorites, all these evil people before right. them. Now he's saying they're worse hmm. than the Canaanites. So how's it going to end for them? Well, obviously God's going to wipe them out. Right. So God sent God sends this pro- this prophecy. I'm gonna wipe you like a dish, <laughs> shake you upside down. It's gonna be you're gonna be completely eradicated. Right. Um, so then we see Ammon, who's evil. Josiah is kind of the last gasp for Judah, mm-hmm. a good king, who seems to be able to to fix things. Right. Right. Maybe. Maybe. He like fixed the temple. Yeah. There, he, right? he repairs the temple. He finds the book of the law, which is probably Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, which had, had probably been hidden from Manasseh, so he couldn't destroy it. <laughs> um, he, I mean, can you imagine reading Deuteronomy for the first time? That'd be crazy. Which like, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed sh- to do this stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have just read Deuteronomy for the first time. But as a king, it's speaking about you hmm. and reading the curses and the blessings, and you're going, "Oh my gosh, we've done everything wrong, <laughs> and God promised this, and look, it just happened to Israel, and now it's about to happen to us." Right. You're reading like your imminent doom, right? And so, I mean, there's there is uh, heartbreak from jo- Josiah. There's reforms enacted. I mean, they are going all out to do what God commands. So, mm. chapter twenty three is all of his reforms and his good works. Um, there's a bunch of them, right? He goes in, into all this detail to to try to worship God. So the question is, is he good enough? Well, verse twenty five of of chapter twenty three says. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Hmm. So 
this has to be the messianic king, right? This has to be the one they're looking for. And yet we see the next verse. No. Mm -hmm. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem. So God is, is saying, Josiah is, is good. I mean, he's really good. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's maybe good enough for himself and to some degree, right? Of course, he still has his own sins. Right. But he's, he's not good enough to fix what is wrong right. with Judah. Exactly. He's not, and part of that is because of his, his own frailty. Mm-hmm. Josiah is still immortal. He's, he's still frail, and so he dies. So in the next section, we see that he dies in battle. He foolishly seeks to go out to fight a battle. It kind of picks a fight with Pharaoh, Nico. It doesn't make any sense, but he dies in that battle. And mm-hmm. so we see that the true king, this isn't an eternal king. This isn't a king that can last. Right. This is just a temporary king. So after a few more bad kings, we see the fall of Judah and the exile to Babylon. And really at the end here, all the the blessings and curses from Deuteronomy are fulfilled. Um, we, I mean, we see in the judgment of God in this book, we see the faithfulness of God. Right. God is faithful to his word, to his promise, right. and that includes his promise to judge right. if people are evil. Right. But, but with that, there's also a promise to save. Right, right? exactly. I mean, God's yeah. going to fulfill that promise to save, and so the, the book ends with Jehoiachin, the last king, being released from prison. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that because it is a it is a I guess strangely hopeful turn, but it's it's kind of a weird ending to the book. So why is it that he's released from prison? Yeah, because there's no real fixing the problem here, but it's just that Jehoiachin is released. So the the focus at the very end is on the seed of David, on the offspring of David, to say there's still a king, even though he's in exile, even though he's in this bad situation, there's still a son. Who can who can carry the promise forward? Hmm. There's still someone. There's still some hint of hope at the very end of this book. Right. So heavy heavy book, um, interesting, and a little complicated. But yeah, like you said, comical in a strange way, just because it's so bizarre and evil. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, how does the gospel connect to this? How does how does this fit in with God's redemptive story and good news? Well, yeah. So one minor thing that I think is is important. Um, just in light of the the exile of the northern kingdom and the development of Samaria, is how Jesus responds to the Samaritans. Mm, yeah. Right? I mean, G, we, we learn in John chapter 4 that people would go around Samaria. That was the typical thing. They would avoid this region of Samaria. And Jesus decides to go through Samaria intentionally to meet with the Samaritan woman mm-hmm. and to speak to her about their false form of worship and to point her to him as the Savior. Mm-hmm. And this woman leads a little revival in her town. Right. I mean, God cares about the Samaritans. He cares about the people that the rest of Israel didn't care about. Mm-hmm. His plan of salvation extends not just to the southern kingdom, not just to Jerusalem, but to all of Israel and ultimately to all of the world. Right. Um, so that's one small thing. But really, I mean, the big thing we have to be seeing, I mean, this is the book of Kings, right? We've been focusing on all these kings. We have to see again and again Jesus as the true king. Mm-hmm. Jesus as the one who, when compared with David, not only measures up to David, right. but goes far, far beyond He's the better David. David yeah. He's the much better David, right? Mm-hmm. So we see, I mean, we've seen a lot of things about Jesus as the fulfillment of David. We've seen that he has these similarities with David. So he's born in Bethlehem like David was. He's tempted in the wilderness like David. He's a shepherd, 
at least metaphorically speaking, like David was, mm-hmm. right? Um, he's betrayed by those close to him like David. He's also a conquering victor over the enemies of God like David. And it, coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city as a triumphant king. Mm-hmm. He's praised as the messianic king. Right. He even dies as the messianic king. Mm. The charge over his head, as each of the Gospels records, right, right, is about his kingship. Right, it's about the fact that he claims to be king, and so Jesus is the the better king who brings true religious reform, mm. who doesn't just break down some some poles or doesn't just <laughs> cleanse the temple. Right. Although he does that, he takes over the temple complex, but he actually fixes what's broken in the human heart. Right, because it's not about a system that's not working. Ultimately, it's about the human heart. Right. So each of these people love and trust in humanity instead of trusting in God. Yeah. So Jesus Christ shows a better way. He's, he's not sinful, as we've said <laughs> again and again. I mean, obviously, that's so important and so foundational to Scripture. But we see that emphasized in his kingship in Revelation chapter 15, right? When Jesus is, is praised in the heavens, it's that they're singing the song of Moses, Revelation 15:3. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Mm. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's an emphasis on the, 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 the justice and the righteousness that Jesus acts with as the King of the world. Right. And this is what was lacking in all of these kings. Yeah, they just they weren't righteous, so they couldn't bring a righteous rule on the earth. Right, and of course, as we saw with Josiah, um, he's Josiah was mortal. Right, right. he failed in, in a sense because um, he couldn't keep reigning, he couldn't keep ruling. Not only was he sinful, but he was also mortal. And Jesus overcomes death. Yeah, he's the eternal king. Yeah, he's the eternal king who who reigns forever because he's conquered death. Right. Yeah. Well, amen to that. Yeah, it couldn't be more encouraging to, you know, like, I can imagine the longing of these people for that one true king, and there's they're getting people like Ahaz and Manasseh. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, my <laughs> word. So anyway, well, we hope that encouraged you guys. That's all we got for today. We'll see you next week, and we're going to get into First Chronicles. It's going to be awesome. Do a little repeat of the Bible, but we'll see you next week, and uh, we hope this equips you to know God through his word and his son, Jesus Christ.